Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Over the course of these last two weeks, we have really seen, well, about 12 chapters worth of God's judgment upon the various peoples of the world. A lot of the mighty groups, but also his own people, have been laid on the, the judgment seat here, laid before the throne of God. And in chapter 24, that was just expanded to everyone. But now in chapter 25, we have some of the most beautiful words in the the book of Isaiah. That God will restore. That God will save. We begin. O Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is Yahweh, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 25 is Isaiah's response to all of the judgment that we just saw. He did have some mourning, um, grief over the, the vast judgment spread over all of creation. But now we're seeing him rejoice. And both of the righteousness of God's judgment, but also the revealing of God's glory. And so we get the, the opening praise language, uh, acknowledging that God is God, exalting God, meaning he's going to lift God up. So in his his speech, maybe song, uh, in, in the praise of the Lord, he's lifting him up, just as the people, the strong peoples in verse 3 will glorify the Lord. Slightly different words, glory and exalt, but very similar in terms of what they're accomplishing, as glory is essentially 
to point to something. So that the strong peoples are glorifying the Lord means that they are they're pointing others to God instead of themselves, as they've been doing all this time in their pride, they now realize that the Lord is stronger than they are. And so there is glory, there is exaltation there. And then praising God's name, uh, which is going to connect us down, let's see, down to verse 9. We have waited for him that he might save us. The Old Testament name of God is great. Yahweh, uh, the one who is. He says, I am, we answer, he is. That's what Yahweh means, he is. It's a confession of our faith. But the New Testament name of God that we receive from the angel Gabriel as he comes to announce the birth of the Messiah, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. We praise the name of God, Jesus, which means he saves. We praise God that he is our God. We praise God that he has saved us. For you have done wonderful things. This is a great spot to stop and have a conversation as a family, a good discussion about about what is it that God has done? What wonderful things has he done? See if your children can give you examples. Aim for past, present, and future. So past, you could go to creation. You could talk about how, how wonderful it is that God made everything. You could talk about how he made it all simply by speaking. You could talk about well, you can move forward. Just think your way through scripture in the timeline of history. How God spared Adam and Eve, even though they rejected him. Um, how God spared mankind, even though it had gotten so tragically wicked that God ended up purging the earth. But he left a remnant on that ark. Think of the exodus, the plagues against God's people uh, as they were enslaved and God comes God uses the plagues in the book of Exodus to not only rescue his people, but also to show his power to the Egyptians that they too may believe. You think of the manna in the wilderness as God provides for his people. You think of him driving out the Canaanites from the promised land. Lots and lots of examples of Old Testament stuff. We can come to the New Testament, which is still past tense to us, and then we can look to the miracles of Jesus. We can look to the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And we can talk about what those have done for us. That in his cross, in his dying breath, he has taken away our sin. And in his resurrection, he has taken away our death. That's coming up in the text. Present examples would be how God provides for us today, how God cares for us today. And so you can look at your own life. And you can pick out those spots where you know that the Lord has been by your side. You know that the Lord has fought for you and that you need only to be still to give a little Exodus flavor there in the New Testament as well. God has done much. He has created you. He has redeemed you. 
and that can help point you to the future examples. What promises do we yet have from God? One of them's coming here in the text, right? Uh, that feast in verse 6, removing the covering in verse 7. So I guess a couple of them are coming yet in this text. We have the paradise that awaits us, that God is preparing a place for us. We have judgment day where we get to come before his throne and be declared innocent. So many, so many wonderful things that God has done. It's, and as John puts it in the New Testament, just with the miracles of Jesus, just. If all the things that Jesus had done were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it all. Dare I say, if all the wonderful things that God has done in the history of creation were to be attempted to be recorded, not even the internet could hold it all. That's just verse one. All right. Well, yeah, not even verse one, because verse one ends with plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. So the plans of old, so the wonderful things that God has done, he prepared to do long ago, even before God created the earth. He knew. He knew we would reject him. He knew we would walk away from him. He knew he would have to fight for us. And yet he did. The plan of Jesus' salvation isn't a last-second thought. It's not a last-ditch effort by God to thwart Satan. The plan of Christ on the cross to deliver mankind is there before we were. Plans of old. And for all of this, these wonderful things... We can be faithful and sure. This is why we have hope today. This is why we have any confidence today. This is why we are Christians today. It's because we trust in the promises of God. If we didn't have these wonderful things, we wouldn't have this hope. But we do. Our hope is sure. Our hope is certain. God will deliver us. Because he already has done the work. If Christ has already died on the cross, there is no reason for God to not spare you now. Your sins are already forgiven. The work has been done. All that is left is to go enjoy the feast. That's verse 6 again. We'll get to that. All right, so verse 2 gets back to the judgment that God has torn down the enemy, uh, those who fought against him. The fortified city is referencing a, you know, the idea of something defendable. It, the city wall, for example, has been fortified. It has been made tough, strong, hard to de- penetrate, hard to defeat. And yet God has done it with ease. And it will never be rebuilt. That is the finality of chapter 24's judgment day. When the Lord returns for his people, when that judgment day comes, all things are final. There's no taking it back. There's no second chances any longer. You've already had more than two chances. Verse 3. The strong peoples glorify God. The ruthless nations fear him. This is an indication that not all, not all the prideful sinners in the world will perish. This is a good thing for you and for me because I am a prideful sinner. That's what our sinful nature does, and yet some will repent. Even among the Pharisees who came to Jesus, 
so many of them seeking to trap him and ultimately killed him. And yet, there were a couple in their group, number actually unknown, but we know two by name, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Pharisees that came to believe in Jesus, just so some of the strong peoples of the earth will see what God has done and they will believe and they too will be saved. Verse 4 and 5 really give you this picture of God's provision for his people. So he is the stronghold. The enemy's fortified city, not good enough, but God is a stronghold and God cannot be overdone, overtaken. God cannot be destroyed, defeated. And so he is a stronghold for the poor, for those who are in distress, for those who need shelter from a storm and shade from a heat. You, you see these pictures, and these are pictures we can resonate with, right? You've all been outside on a blistering hot day where it just it felt good to get into the shade. You've been in, in a storm where you just needed to get inside and out of the dangerous, uh, the path of maybe a tornado or a hurricane or or just the heavy winds and the heavy downpour of rain with lightning and thunder. You know what these illustrations are, but this is God's provision for you. Verse 6 brings us to the feast. And on this mountain, Jerusalem... This is interesting here. This is a twofold prophecy. We have not just the, the heavenly banquet in mind. The Lord's Supper is also in mind here for us as God's people today. God will make a feast. Yahweh will make a feast for all peoples of well-aged wine and of food that is full of marrow. So that is from the flesh. What's that sound like? I've already given it away, but the Lord's Supper. The last supper that Jesus celebrates in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples just before he's crucified. Where he gives his body, marrow, in the bread for us. Where he gives his blood in the wine for us. In, with, and under is the phrase we Lutherans like to use. We don't know how it's there. We just know it's there. Does the bread actually become Christ's body so that the bread is no longer there? Does the bread somehow come alongside the body of Christ so that they're both there? We don't try to answer those questions because we just don't know. The scriptures simply said, Jesus simply said, this is my body. And so we take him for his word. We believe him at that. And, and we don't try to understand what we can't understand. But it is a beautiful thing. It offers forgiveness to God's people. So it is, It is again, it's twofold. So we have that wondrous feast that we get to partake of each and every week as God's people when we come into his house. Some blessed brothers and sisters in the world get it every day um, where they gather together daily uh, out of love for their Lord and building up of their faith for the day ahead in challenging times. The second part of this twofold prophecy, though, is the heavenly feast that we all look forward to. I don't want to downplay the Lord's Supper after just building it up, but in some ways the Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing still that there is something better on the way. 
to actually live with, to be with Christ forevermore in his paradise and eating the heavenly banquet with him. Even as Jesus gives the words of institution in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, I believe that is, you can hear him say it, that he will not drink again of the vine until he drinks it with his disciples in the Father's kingdom. There is a heavenly feast that awaits us, brothers and sisters. And it's going to be better than any feast you've ever had. Guarantee it. Verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. This is this is the this is the gospel. You are a sinner. You have failed to live up to who you were called to be. You have failed to care for creation. You have failed to care for your neighbor. You have failed to do whatever it was that God has laid before you to do. You have rebelled against him and treated him like dirt. That is the veil over the nations. Your sin, my sin, and that the punishment of these sins, rightly so, is our death. Sin and death is the veil that covers all nations. We, as a a sinful people, cannot come into the presence of a holy God and live. We would perish. We see this in the Old Testament. But yet, on that day, on the cross, on Good Friday, the veil is torn. Hoping that's taking you to the image that we actually get in Matthew 27. One of the events when Jesus dies on the cross is that the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was divided into two spaces. You had, well, you had the outer courtyard, but then you had the holy place, the the first room when you came inside, where you'd find the table of the presence, which had bread and wine on it, by the way. You had the incense offering that was right before the curtain, and then you also have the lampstand that gave light to it all. But past the curtain and that divided and separated the inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, where only the Ark of God was. And only once a year did the high priest and only the high priest enter past that curtain to go into that room with the, the sacrifice for atonement of sin. God's presence was in the midst of his people. That's the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. God, the holy God who has created all of this, is right there indwelling with his people. You can see that in the depiction of the tabernacle, how it was supposed to be the center of the camp. The Israelites, when they wandered in the wilderness, they'd, they'd take it down, they'd move to the next spot. When God told them to stop, they'd stop, they'd set up the tabernacle, and they would camp the 12 tribes of Israel, three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. They would surround it. God was in the midst. He was in the middle of his people. But that curtain, which uh, Jewish tradition holds was four inches thick, that curtain <laughs> separated God's holiness from his people so that we could live and not die. Because again, coming into the presence of God, we would die. Even when the the ark was being carried and fell, and a man dove trying to catch it and save it. He was struck down because he had touched the holy thing of the Lord, and he was a sinner, and he could not do that. They had poles on everything so they could carry the stuff without touching it. On Good Friday, the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, from God to man. God, in his holiness is now present with us still 
but he's all present as we talk about omnipresent he is present everywhere and because of christ instead of that veil of sin and death that has been taken up upon us taken off of us we now have the righteousness of christ upon us sins forgiven and so we can come into the presence of god we can be in the presence of god and not die that is the beauty of the cross the beauty of this text, again, another wonderful thing that Jesus has done. Death is swallowed up forever. Verse 8 is that beautiful language that God is going to wipe away the tears from all faces. Um, we, we talk about that. There will be no more pain, suffering, death. Those things won't be there in paradise any longer. They are removed from creation on the day of judgment. The reproach of God's people will be taken away. That is, they will no longer be shamed because they have been restored. They have been redeemed in their Savior, Jesus. Verse 9 gives us another twofold prophecy as we talk about waiting for salvation, waiting for him that he might save us. So again, in the name of Jesus, he saves. The people waited for Jesus to come the Savior, the Messiah to come. That's what the New Testament's about. That's what the Gospels are about. And now we wait for the Messiah to come again. As God's people, we are waiting for the promise that Jesus made, the second coming, that he said he would come again for us. We wait for that salvation. We rejoice in that salvation that we have from our Lord. The text ends with a couple more verses of judgment, uh, that the enemy will try to escape but that there will be no escape. We saw that in chapters before as well. So God will lay low his pride. He will lay low the skill of his hands. He will lay low his fortifications. Everything that, that the enemy was prideful of is taken away. But God has redeemed. God has restored. God has rescued. He has saved his people in and through the cross of Jesus Christ.